0: your Bibles, please, to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read aloud verses 1 through 15. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore, his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known openly. If you're doing these things, show yourself publicly to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I bear witness about it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I am not yet going up to this feast, because my time has not yet been fulfilled. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not public, publicly, but as in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the crowd astray. Yet no one was speaking openly about him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, not having been educated? We saw last week the first five verses about Jesus' brothers not believing in him. And we made the point that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is not inherited. The faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, as John 1.13 says, is... Not by the will of man, nor by the will of the flesh, nor of blood, but of God. God has to give faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has to open the eyes. And we see that uh, last week as well, that he was not willing to go up to Judea. Judea. Whenever you're in Palestine, you go up to Jerusalem. He was not willing to go up to Judea because the Jews were plotting to kill him. We saw that back in chapter 5. They, were going to, they wanted to kill him because he had healed a man on the Sabbath. And that was outrageous. That you would break the Sabbath by practicing medicine. They wanted to kill him more though because he called himself the son of the God. That God himself was his father. And to them that was blasphemy. So they're determined that they're going to kill him. So he's determined he's not going to go up there for a while. And we're going to see why in just a little bit. So he stays in Galilee. Stays there from uh, Passover, which is when he had that confrontation with the Jews, until the Feast of Booths. And we talked about the Feast of Booths, that it was one of the three annual feasts that all Jewish males had to attend wherever the tabernacle or the temple was. So all the Jewish males were compelled to come now to Jerusalem. To celebrate this feast. So you'd have Jews from all over the world. That were coming there to keep the law. To celebrate this feast. And it was a reminder. An annual reminder of how God had provided for their ancestors when they left Egypt. After he delivered them from slavery. And he provided them food. And he provided water. And food. Uh, and everything else that they needed. So it was. a bread read that it's the most joyful of all the Jewish feasts of that time. Because there was also a harvest feast that all of the crops have been brought in. And so the year's barns are full and everybody's rejoicing. So Jesus, being a law-keeping Jewish male, can no longer stay in Galilee. He's compelled by the law now to go to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up our story. His brother said, Go on up. They have a snide rebuke to him. What are you doing here in Galilee? Since you're doing all these miracles so that all Israel will recognize you, why are you hiding up here? Look at verse 4. No one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known openly. That word secret there means nobody does anything out of the public's eye. Nobody does anything to keep him away from public notice if you want to be known openly. And apparently, you want everybody to know that you claim to be the Messiah. If you're doing these things, if you're doing all these works, and that, by the way, that word if doesn't mean you may be and you may not be. That's a particular Greek word that can be translated since. See, they believe he's doing the miracles. And they're saying, in effect, since you're doing all these things, show yourself publicly to the world. What they're saying is, quit messing around. Get on with it. If you're the Messiah, if you are who you claim to be, then why are you hiding up here? Go to Jerusalem. That's where the Jewish leaders are. Go to Jerusalem. Go to the Sanhedrin. If you go back to Jerusalem... And you perform these miracles... And you do this teaching... The religious leaders are going to realize... You are the Messiah. And the Sanhedrin will declare you to be the Messiah. And all of Israel will follow you. Now they don't believe that. They don't believe he's the Messiah. But they are basically saying We're sick and tired of you staying up here... When you're claiming to be the Messiah. Get down to Jerusalem make a public show of yourself dazzle them all with your miracles and then they will declare you to be the Messiah get on with it, do it now but in verses 6-9 through nine, the Lord Jesus, and this is the point well it's the point of the teaching but it's not the point of the sermon all right. the Lord Jesus is making it plain to them here I'm not working on your timetable I work on my own timetable I work on the Father's timetable. It's not yet my time to go up to the feast. Notice verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always here. Jesus left heaven to be born a man. To die as a man on the cross to save all who will trust in him from their sins. He came to be a willing substitute for us, to willingly sacrifice himself as a blood sacrifice for us, to willingly absorb all of the Father's wrath that we deserve. And we deserve the Father's wrath because we have broken His law. We have sinned against Him. And He is infinitely holy. And it's not just that we have committed this sin or that sin or the other sin. It's that we sinned against a holy, perfect Creator God. And therefore, we deserve His wrath. So the Lord Jesus Christ has come to earth, been born as a human being, to satisfy the Father's holy wrath justice so that John 3.16 can be fulfilled so that God the Father can forgive us because he's holy he can't just say well never mind sin he has to deal with sin sin has to be punished and Christ came to be our substitute to be punished in our place so that the Father can forgive us so that the Father can declare us right for himself with himself And so that he can even, which is mind-boggling, adopt us as his own children. That's the sort of Messiah the Old Testament had predicted. That's the sort of Messiah that God sent to Israel. It's the Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6 sort of Messiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our sins was laid upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. That all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, that is Yahweh, has laid on him our iniquity. The iniquity of us all. That's the sort of Messiah God sent. A Messiah who would save his people from their sins. So they could be reconciled to him. But almost all the Jews missed it. We keep running into it throughout the Gospel of John. They expected a political savior. Not someone to save them from their sins. They knew that Messiah would be a descendant of King David. So they're expecting a royal king. To be sent by God to them. He's going to be a great warrior. Just like David delivered Israel from the Philistines. This royal king can deliver us from the Romans. And they know from the the prophecies of Daniel that it's time for this Messiah to show up. So they're looking for a warrior king that's going to drive Rome out. A warrior king that's going to expand the boundaries of Israel to what God had promised to Israel. That is all the way from Egypt to Lebanon to the Euphrates River. They had never occupied all that territory. But now this Messiah was going to conquer it for them and they would have it all. They would have everything that God said they were to conquer. Which they had never gotten around to conquering. He's going to bring in an era of endless peace. Something they've not known in a long time. And freedom. He's going to restore Israel's economic greatness. To the level that Solomon had. In Solomon's day. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 21 says that there was so much gold flowing into Israel from all the nations that silver was accounted as nothing. Can you imagine that? That a country would be so rich that silver would be considered just base metal that if it's not gold, it's not worth anything. <laughs> That's how rich Israel was under Solomon. And they expected him, this Messiah, this warrior king, to restore Israel's prosperity to the same level. That all the nations would be coming to Israel. It would be even better than the American dream. There would be no poor. No poor people at all in Israel. Isaiah 25.8 says, During this time... God will wipe every tear away from their eye. Does that bring something to mind from the book of Revelation? Because that's what's going to happen at the end when the Messiah returns the second time. But that's not the sermon tonight, so I'm going to move on from there. In effect, what they would have under the Messiah, under this warrior king, under this economic powerhouse, would be heaven on earth. Now, they knew how to recognize him. He is going to be born in Bethlehem. That's what Micah had prophesied. But he's certainly not going to be born to some poor family in a barn. I mean, this is a king. This is a descendant of David. Surely he's going to be born in a nice, rich man's house. From a good family, from the right side of the tracks. And he's going to work miracles. It would be like Moses, like Elijah, like Elisha. They expected him to work miracles. Do you see where this is going? The Jews expected a political, economic superman to put them on the top of the heap. And they were wrong. Because that's not. God's Messiah. That's what they were expecting. God's Messiah was going to be given to cleanse us from our sins. As Titus chapter 2 says. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good works. A Messiah to convert us. To cleanse us from our sins. on the cross... But it's not time for that yet. The time for the cross has not come yet. And Jesus knows this. He, he knows this. There's still much to be done. And there's a lot to be taught. Between now and the time that his father had set for him to be crucified. Which was Passover. This is around October for the Feast of Booths Passover will be around the end of March to early April there's still a lot of work to be done so my time is not yet here that's what he said in verse 6 my time is not yet here for the cross my time is not yet here for me to go up now today to this feast in Jerusalem I'm working according to my timetable, which is my Father's timetable, but you're not. You, you can go up to the feast anytime you want to. You're not restricted by our timetable. You're not on any divine timetable. It makes no difference when you go up because it makes no difference what you do. You're not going to be sacrificed for the sins of our people. Look at verse 8. He says. You go up to the feast yourselves. I am not yet going up to this feast because my time has not yet been fulfilled. I'm not yet going up because the time's not right. Now I skipped over verse 7. So let's look at what that's all about. Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I bear witness about it that its deeds are evil the world I forget exactly how many different uses of the world there are in the gospels I think there's at least seven or eight different ways that this word world can be interpreted but in this particular place what Jesus is when he says the world he's talking about I borrowed this from a cult but it is certainly such a good uh, description this present evil system of things It's creation that's hostile to God. A fallen creation hostile to God. Especially Satan and the demons and lost mankind. As Romans 5, 6 would say, When we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's who the world is. Every unbeliever is part of the world. Every unbeliever loves the world. Every unbeliever is willingly enslaved to the world. Willingly enslaved to the world. All of his pleasure, all of his satisfaction, all of his hope is found in the world. So naturally, as John 15, 19 will tell us later when we get to it, the world loves its own. If you love the world, if all of your hopes and dreams and aspirations are in the world, then the world's going to love you. Jesus don't believe in him. And so they're part of the world. And the world can't hate them. That's what he says. The world cannot hate you. Parentheses. Because you're part of it. But it hates me. It hates me because I testify to its evil and the Jews hate me because they're part of the world and I know it's a grind but let me say it again when he says the Jews here he's talking about the religious leaders the ones who thought they had it all together the Pharisees and Sadducees in particular The Pharisees thinking, if we'll keep all of our laws, then God's obligated to give us eternal life. And the Sadducees, who didn't even believe in eternal life anyway, they were just using religion for a living. They were the priest class. And most of them didn't believe anything outside uh, the books of Moses. They rejected everything else. They were both evil. They were both working evil. Jesus later, will, in the other Gospels, will accuse the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, because you rob the widows and the orphans of their houses. You are supposed to be so righteous, so devoted to the law, and you're a bunch of thieves. You have no mercy. And so I testify that their deeds are evil. Hmm. Now I want you to skip down to verse 11 for a reason. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast. Saying where is he? Now we understand. Why Jesus says it's not my time. Now we understand. Why Jesus says I'm not going up to this feast. Now. Today. Because the Jews were seeking. To kill him. They're looking for him. At the feast. If Jesus goes up with that first group of pilgrims to the feast you know it's like anything else it's like Sunday morning we get folks trickling in about 30 minutes before worship service starts I get there there's maybe five or six or eight other people there and then more people come in and more people come in and then we start the worship service and then more people come in in the beginning it's a small group If Jesus came in with a small group into Jerusalem and the religious leaders saw him, it would be really easy to seize him, to try him for blasphemy, and to drag him outside of Jerusalem and stone him like they did Stephen later without causing any kind of a ruckus at all, no uproar at all. And Jesus knows that. It's not his time to die. And he's not going, to be, uh, not going to be killed by stoning. He has to be crucified. So Jesus says, I'm not going up yet. So let's back up. In verse 14, we're told, he waits until the middle of the feast. And Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. In the middle of the feast, Jews from all over the world have now gathered in Jerusalem. It's now the fourth or fifth day of the observation of the feast. And so Jerusalem is packed with all of these Jews. And remember when the men came, they would bring their families with them. So all these Jews are packed into Jerusalem. It's just teeming with people. And there's probably hundreds if not thousands among them who are beginning to consider that Jesus very well could be the Messiah. So the religious leaders are not going to have an easy time of lynching him now. And that's when Jesus shows up. He busts their little plan. It's going to be much more difficult to grab him. But let's back up now to verses 12 and 13 and deal with this. Jesus' miracles have made him such a celebrity in Israel that verse 12 says there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Grumbling. Murmuring. uh, Not so much complaining because some of them say he's a good man. But it's the idea of getting off in small groups and talking among yourself in a low voice. Everybody's talking about Jesus. Everybody at the feast is talking about this miracle worker. Some were saying He's a good man. Look what he does. He heals. He casts out demons for free. He doesn't even charge us for it. He feeds us for free. He's a good man. Look at his character. He's always pointing us back to God. He's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary. He leads the crowd astray. And so my question is, astray to where? He's always talking about God. He's always calling people to repent and to prepare for the kingdom of God. Where is he leading the people astray to? Well, he, he doesn't observe our traditions. He, he just doesn't keep the way we've always done things around here. That sounds kind of familiar. So some were saying that he's a good man. Some say, no, he's leading people astray. Verse 13, yet no one was speaking openly about him for fear of the Jews. The Sanhedrin has not given their pronouncement yet on what they think of Jesus. That's what everybody's waiting for. I mean, the Sanhedrin are the wise men of Israel. These are all the elders, the Pharisees, the, the head Sadducees. These are the 70 that ruled Israel and supposed to be the most spiritually intuned of all of Israel. If anybody's going to recognize the Messiah, it's going to be the Sanhedrin. And they have not made a pronouncement about Jesus yet. Nobody wants to be on the wrong side of the Sanhedrin. So if you think he's a good man. And they come out and say no he's a deceiver. Now you're in trouble with the authorities. But if you say he's a deceiver. He leads the people astray. And the Sanhedrin comes out and says he's the Messiah. You're really in trouble with the authorities. So everybody's keeping to themselves. Because they don't want to be on the wrong side of the street. When the pronouncement comes out from the Sanhedrin. then look at verse 15 or verse 14 rather but when it was now the middle of the feast Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach I love this I I love the humor that seems to be here in, in what John's writing everybody's afraid of what the Pharisees what the scribes what the Sanhedrin may hear them say Everybody's afraid to take a stance about Jesus. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the feast, Jesus shows up. And he doesn't just show up in the streets. Where does he show up? In the temple. He goes right to the temple. He goes into the temple, probably the temple of the court of the Gentiles or the court of Israel. One of those. Maybe the court of the women. That way all the women could come and hear him as well. But he goes into the temple and he begins to teach. No fear. He has no fear at all of what they're thinking. He knows what they're thinking. He shows up and now everybody's fear is busted. But also, this reminds me, when he shows up suddenly in the temple of Malachi 3.1, a prophecy of the book of Malachi that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Pharisees have been seeking him. Where is he? And now the Lord whom you seek has suddenly come to his temple. Now so far in the gospel of John, there's no record of Of Jesus publicly teaching in Jerusalem. In chapter 2 and verse 23. He performs signs on that first Passover. But it doesn't say anything about him teaching. In chapter 5. He defends himself against the Jews. When they accuse him of being a blasphemer. But again. That was just to them. And there is no record of him publicly teaching in Jerusalem. So he's now Publicly teaching. What's he teaching? Apparently the scriptures. Look at verse 15. The Jews then. Remember who the Jews are. These are the most educated. These are the spiritual elite. Among the Jewish people. If anybody's got their Bible right. It's supposed to be them. The Jews then were marveling. Saying. How has this man become learned, not having been educated? Learned. To be learned in Israel was to know the scriptures. How does this man know all this? How does he pull all these scriptures from memory that we memorized? How is it that he sits down like a rabbi... And teaches with authority. How is it that he teaches piece by piece, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, just like a rabbi. How is it that he makes it so plain? How is it that he's such a good expositor of scripture when he's never been to school? When it says here he's never been educated. He's never been to one of our rabbinical schools, one of our official schools. What we would call today a pastor training school or a seminary or a Bible institute. How is it that he knows the word? Well, I touched on it last week a little bit or maybe the week before. From his childhood, Jesus had memorized huge tracts of scripture. Huge passages of scripture. Because this reminds me of when he was 12. You remember when he went to his first Passover with Mary and Joseph? And the Passover's over, and they're going home. And they go for a day in the crowds. And at the end of the day, they start looking for Jesus. They figure he's with some relatives in the crowd. Can't find Jesus. He's nowhere in the crowd. So they take another day to get back to Jerusalem. And they spend another day in Jerusalem looking for him. And they're getting frantic. Frantic. This is God's son. We haven't lost God's son, have we? They're getting frantic. And where do they find him? Luke tells us he's in the temple. Sitting with the teachers. Asking them questions and listening to them. And Luke tells us they were all astonished at his answers and his understanding at 12. The seminary professors are astonished at this 12-year-old's understanding of the Scriptures. Maybe they shouldn't have been. I mean, after all, he's the Word of God. He's the one who gave the Scriptures before his incarnation. He is the incarnate. Word of God. If anybody knows how to handle the scriptures, it's him. But they're wondering, how can this man, this nobody, this uneducated, this carpenter, how is it that he's so adept with the Word of God? And they're astonished just like those other seminary professors were astonished at him in the temple when he was 12 years old. Mm -hmm. Now what's the point of all this? Let's get to the point. Here's the point. The Lord Jesus Christ controls the schedule. The Lord Jesus Christ is on his father's timetable. Their agenda for him must be fulfilled at the cross. And their agenda for him must be fulfilled On the way to the cross. He's not going to allow anything to interfere with what he has to do in order to get to the cross. He's making sure that he will be crucified on Passover day. He won't be pushed off of his schedule by his brothers. He's not going to be delayed from his schedule by Pilate. He is in control of his own death. He is in control of his own sacrifice of himself. He is in control of the timetable. He is in control of the schedule. And the Lord Jesus Christ is in control of the schedule he set for our lives as well. He will carry out his agenda for you. He will carry out what happens in your life to conform you to his own image. He will carry out and he determines when each and every event in your life is going to happen. Ephesians 1.11 puts it like this. He works all things after the counsel of his own will. He schedules who your ancestors were for hundreds of generations before you were born in order to make you Think about that. I don't know how far back maples is go. But all of my ancestors, all the way back to Scotland, hundreds of hundreds of years ago, every marriage was engineered by the Lord Jesus Christ in order to produce me as I am. Every marriage for hundreds of generations was engineered to produce you for who you are. He determined when and where you would be born. He determined who you would be born to. Every situation that in your life that would shape you, he set the schedule for it to happen to us. He knows what he has planned for your life. He knows how it will play it out. I want to give you a small illustration of this. I've had three Sarahs in my life that I love one in New York, Sarah Presnell up at, uh, in our church, and a third Sarah who just recently got married back in September. And Sarah, this Sarah, Sarah Hargrave, was in a, a, an English family in our church in Massachusetts and she was just darling that's all I can say just a sweet child she and her sister both were just precious children so she snagged my heart like the other two have and I can remember that as she grew we would communicate um, one of my objectives for her was it was almost as if she was moot you, know, you almost never heard a word come out of her mouth She'd smile, break your heart, smiling, you know, and she was sweet and all this, but she almost said nothing. And I determined that when I I left Massachusetts, I'm going to bring this kid out of her shell. She was 11 years old at that time. So we started writing back and forth, and initially I would get little notes that said, uh, Dear Mr. Maples, how are you? I am fine. Love, Sarah. (laughs) Now I get eight-page emails, and she has definitely come out of her shell. But as she became an adult, a young woman, in her late teens, early 20s, she had gone to Cambridge, she had graduated from Cambridge, and she had all these opportunities that were laying before her. And she wrote me, Harry, what should I do? I want to serve the Lord. I want to be useful at his hand. What should I do? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do this? She was listing these things, the opportunities she had. So I asked her, I said, which one do you want to do? She wanted to do this particular thing. I said, do it. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Do that. It's a good thing. It's a service to the Lord. But is that what he wants me to do? I said, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. He has your life all figured out. You do this for a while. And then another opportunity opens up. And you do that for a while. And then another opportunity may open. And you do that for a while. And eventually, he brings you to where he intended you to be all along. Just trust him. You see an opportunity to serve Him. And you take it. And don't worry about, am I choosing the right one? Girl, you know how many people would love to have four or five or six options like you have? Just pick one and go with it. And the Lord will make sure that you get to where He wants you to be. We were talking about this earlier. Why did it take me so many years to come to the doctrines of grace? It was on the Lord's schedule. Remember. We don't understand the doctrines of grace by intelligence. And we don't understand the doctrines of grace. Because we are superior to other people. We were brought to the doctrines of grace. By his grace. On his timetable. And he will. As Philippians one six says. Being confident. Of this very thing. That he who has begun a good work in you. Will perfect it. Will complete it. Until the coming of Christ Jesus. He is going to continue. To bring to you in his timetable. Opportunities to grow. And opportunities to serve. When we're ready for them. Aren't you glad. That your growth in grace. Is not in our hands. Aren't you glad. That he owns the schedule. Let's pray. Father. Thank you that you have determined the day of our death. Just like you determined the day of our birth. Thank you that you have determined everything you're going to do. Everything you're going to provide for us. To grow us into the image of Christ. Thank you that you provided all of this for us. Thank you that we can rest in you, that you control the schedule. For Christ's sake and for your glory, amen. Would you stand with me, please? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. And we are dismissed.